You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin by calling in the spirits to support us here today. So I call out to your ancestors and to my ancestors, to all of those who lived in a good way, who died in a good way, and have a legacy to offer those who are living. I call out to those who bring that which is good and true and beautiful into our lives. It is on their shoulders that we stand. It is because they dreamt of a better future that we are here. And may they guide us in our own dreaming. So I call out to these ancestors to be with us here today and help us to understand what is going on in our world and how do we how to respond to those movements of energies in ways that will benefit all those who are coming, those that are human and those that are non-human beings. Help us to know how to live in balance, how to live in harmony, and how to live in peace, and to understand that these things are not pipe dreams, but the greatest challenges that face us here today. And we ask those ancestors who came to understand the challenges of that path of being a human to be with us here today and help us. Help us to go beyond where they went by truly listening to that which they came to understand and to know through the actions in their own lives. So we call out to these ancestors, those that are good and true and beautiful, to be with us here today and to help us. And let us reach down now all the way into the center of the earth, into that great and most essential ancestor, the earth, the being, the planet, We give thanks to her for the wonder of her dreaming that brought life as we experience it here to the face of this planet, and we give thanks today for life. Thanks for our own lives and for that miracle of life that is within each one of us, and may we live in a way today that honors that miracle. May we have at least one moment in this day of awe, a moment of gratitude, a moment of offering blessing, and may all of these moments come together to help us to have the courage in this day to be loving. So we give thanks to the earth for place, for home, for grounding, for belonging and connection, and the interconnectedness of all living things, and that opportunity in every moment that sits pregnant for us, that moment, that feeling, that experience of connecting to all living things, and feeling oneness, and our place within that great experience. So we give thanks to the earth for this divinity of oneness, the interconnectedness, and the reality of that physical experience. And we ask for the earth and her dreaming to be rich within us here today that we might understand how to be manifest in form in a good way. And let us extend our energies up, all the way up to the sky, all the way to the highest powers of the universe. And by whatever name you choose to call that energy, call it down into yourself, into your body, into our proceedings here today, and into your day itself at whatever time you choose to listen. May the energies from above be with you, bringing in blessing, bringing in protection bringing in generosity and benevolence and all the wisdom of the universe into your life. May you be inspired and filled with this energy. Allow it to remind every cell of your body who it is and what it is and let it replicate accurately. 
So we call in this energy of the divine and draw this golden energy in from above and let it connect with the energies of the earth within ourselves. And let the energies of the earth and sky dance within us into the exact perfect blend that will bring each one of us into balance in this day. And may that balance give us the ability to open and call out the spirit of our heart. And we call out to the heart to be what it is truly designed to be, which is the great crucible that can hold the fires of the lower chakras, the fires of passion and desire and the true calling of our own unique genius. We ask the heart to hold those fires in a good way as we draw down the clarity and the focus and the precision and the innovation, the creativity that comes down from the energies of the mind. We call these energies both into the heart and ask them to dance together in the heart and to produce from that dance a third energy, which is our own conscious understanding of why we are here our knowing of our true, unique soul's purpose. And may we find in our heart today the courage to live that purpose and to bring our gifts to the world. So with these energies around us and within us called in, may these proceedings today go forward in a way that allows what needs to be said, be said, and what needs to be heard, be heard. And may these things occur in a way that is good for all living things. So I give great thanks to the spirits around us And I want to give special uh, gratitude and thanks and um, ask for the help from the internet spirits here today that we stay with a solid good connection. So I also want to give thanks to um, all of the people that have supported the show since we last spoke. I want to thank Nate and Jan and Indrek and Beck and all of the listeners who have donated to the show. That helps keep the show actually on the air and free to those who are able to listen. If they can get on a connection, um, they can listen. And so it is important to me, at least, and to those who are listening, that this information is out as widely as possible, especially as the people of the world are wanting things to change and wanting to understand how we might gain the support to do that and not just create a new version of the same old crappy system. So... With this, this information is important for those of you that believe that, for those of you that are moved by this show, those of you that feel moved in your heart or moved into pure and total irritation. I ask those of you that you are moved to allow yourself to move into action and to donate to the show, strengthen the show in some way, um, connect, link to your website, do something that allows the show to grow. And in this way, we will allow the teachings to continue to move out into the world and the world will be able to remember, humanity of the world will be able to remember why it's here. And in so doing, we might actually create a world that's good for all living things. And so for that to happen, we all need to, we are now all in this together. So for those of you that have donated, thank you. For those of you who will, thank you. For those of you who are trying to figure out how, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com and click on the support button. You can um, donate any amount, large or small. It is all um, deeply, deeply appreciated. It keeps the show on the air. And for those of you that aren't comfortable paying via the internet, feel free to contact me at Christina at lastmaskcenter.org or you can go to the website, lastmaskcenter.org and we're happy to give you a mailing address for the old-fashioned way. So um, thank you all for being here today and thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for listening, sending in questions and great show ideas. I appreciate all of it. So today's show actually was inspired, um, well, actually by my life, not necessarily by a, um, a listener's question until I actually started writing the show, oddly enough, and then all of a sudden I got all these questions about it. But anyway, the topic today is unconscious sorcery. 
Um, however, to talk about unconscious sorcery, we really probably need to define sorcery first. So we'll start there. But I just want to remind you that we are live. Um, and you are invited to call in at 512-772-1938. Or you can Skype from the co-creatornetwork.com site. Or email me at christina at lastmasscenter.org. So, okay, first, shamanic peoples around the globe understand that the invisible world or the spirit world or non-ordinary reality, whatever you want to call it, is an amoral world. That is not immoral, but amoral. So that's the first thing to understand. The The spirit world, the invisible world, this world that we reach out to for help is not sitting in judgment of our actions. It's simply there to assist us and teach us actually. But anyway, my point is it is an amoral world. Right. Historically, people, humans, um, if you listen to the stories, the creation mythologies of shamanic people or read them, that historically people, humans, could not figure out how to live here in a good way. Left to our own, own devices, we just destroyed everything in ourselves. We couldn't figure out how to interface with the environment before we destroyed it or it destroyed us. Uh, We couldn't figure out how to live together. We fell into greed, jealousy, envy, brutality, violation. In fact, we were very much like people are today. The point is people were challenged to figure out how to rise in this environment to their better self. And that's always been a challenge in being a human. Thus the burden of free will. So it was the first shaman then, from in the stories of the shamanic peoples, it was the first shaman who brought the teachings to the people of how to live morally and ethically with humans and non-humans. So they brought the teachings how to plant, how to hunt, how to be in whatever environment the people were in, but also the teachings of how to be together as humans ethically with humans and non-human beings. And these teachings came from the first shaman. So in other words, they came out of that amoral spirit world. So our helping spirits can teach us how to be better humans if we ask, but they are not sitting there in judgment of us. So the morality and ethics of our decisions rest squarely on our shoulders, not the spirit world. So the morality and ethics, though we can ask the spirit world to help us to understand how to be moral and ethical, the decisions of what we do and the morality and the ethics inherent in those decisions rest squarely on our shoulders. So in other words, if you don't ask for help and you fall into envy and greed and you don't even know that and you're doing it unconsciously, that still rests on your shoulders. That you didn't ask for help also rests on your shoulders. It's all about us when it comes to morality and ethics. So given all of this, shamanic people were very aware of sorcery evolving hand in hand with shamanism. Because the root source of most sorcery is a person's anger, jealousy, lust, envy, greed. I mean, these very same things that people tend to fall into. Um, And I don't mean they accidentally fall into it. I mean, when we cannot rise into our better self, we fall into our common um, immoral and unethical self and that shamanic people understand this very um, deeply 
and and in a in a very um, ordinary part of the fabric of their everyday life. They don't have this naive idea that if I'm good, it will all work out, that there's some sort of inherent goodness and some sort of inherent evil, but more that human beings are constantly challenged by the very nature of being human to make moral and ethical choices, to do the right thing. And that this is, this is a dance, that we dance throughout our life is a dance of balance, not a dance of whether we're fundamentally good or evil, but it is a dance of balance and that it is a dance, easier dance with some help from spirit. Thank you very much. But that's not my point today. My point today is sorcery. Okay. So in other words, sorcery is set in motion by very human motivation. Sorcery is not evil. It is not the source of evil. It, it, they are simply actions set in motion by human beings being immoral and unethical. Okay. So sorcery does happen. And today, in, a, in the contemporary world, sorcery happens especially when we interface with communities that extend from cultures that are currently practicing sorcery at, you know, professionally. And today, what I really want to speak about is something much more common and normalized in American culture, which is unconscious sorcery. But back to this comment I just made about sorcery and its sort of relationship with certain communities, I don't mean that to be a racist comment, just a practical one and, and a historical one. Because we need, we, humanity as a whole, need to understand that the process to successfully colonize a people which has been used on every continent all around the planet, is very well developed and very well thought out and very well understood. And one of the first things you do is you kill the shamans. Because the shamans aren't like leaders. Leaders can be coerced to save the people. But shamans are always responding to this higher power of the, in the spirit, higher than human power in the spirit world and are not as easily coerced. And so you kill the shamans, and the and because the shamans are also overt, they're known, they're seen, they're expressing their shamanness uh, publicly. Sorcery tends to be more hidden, and so what happened as um, various, mostly European uh, countries moved through the globe and began to colonize shamanic people, they killed the shamans. And not the sorcerers. So you, you had this sort of balance between shamans and sorcerers evolving together until the great white saviors came and killed off the shamans and left the sorcery to continue to evolve almost unchecked by the shamanism. And so part of the reason sorcery is particularly highly developed in certain parts of the world is because the idiot colonizers went in there and among many other atrocities killed off the shaman so sorcery is developed unchecked in those areas and there's some very very powerful advanced well thought out sorcery going on on our globe today um so there that's not the point of the show today, but just to understand that. And that's where my comment is coming from, where when we interface with these cultures, or anybody interfaces with these cultures, the possibility of coming into contact with some pretty seriously advanced sorcery is um, high. Now, in America, um, you're more likely to run into unconscious sorcery, which is the topic of the show today, because pretty much in America, everybody's doing it. Really? Okay. So, 
back to finishing my little definition here of sorcery. So recently, someone asked me if shamans and witch doctors are the same. And my response was, that depends on how you define witch doctor. If you define it like Hollywood, then the witch doctor is a scary sort of raise the dead, cast spell, spit frogs kind of character. Um, And if that's how you're defining witch doctor, no, shamans and witch doctors aren't the same. But if you live in any of these cultures where the colonizers came in and killed off all the shamans, the witch doctor is the person who doctors the witchcraft. Now, even the witchcraft thing is a bad translation of words because it's really sorcery. So the point is, in some cultures, if you're interpreting witch doctor as the person who doctors the sorcery, then yes, that would define a shaman. So it's, it's very confusing and there's, no, there's many, many reasons we don't really understand this, but we should because we're doing it unconsciously. So let's talk about sorcery and get that nailed down so we can move along. So some people define sorcery as the use of a sympathetic magic for personal gain or malevolent purposes. However, however, there are others that believe that when these skills are used properly, they can allow one to taste infinity. In other words, they can be used for extreme personal development. And an example of that would be Carlos Castaneda's books and the teachings of the Brujo Don Juan, who was sorcerer but this was all sort of sorcery for personal development so with that said the training of shamans and sorcerers are nearly identical and how the the how and why that training is used is the distinction that's the whole world of the distinction is in that intention and the motivation so I, can, I think we can actually understand this better today than maybe 20 years ago when I started just because of all of the research right now in science and spirituality that is showing the true measurable importance of intention in the mind and in the heart. And so that the same act with a different intention could result in two very, very different things and be called two very, very different things is more easily understood these days than 30 years ago. And that's part of the changing time that we live in. So the sorcerer's path is exclusively the path of personal power and and liberation in its best sense. And for this reason, in the Encyclopedia of Shamanism, I distinguish the sorcerer's actions from the shaman's actions as an issue of responding to need. And I didn't mean that to be a moral distinction. I meant it as a functional one. In other words, for shamans, they they recognize that there is a flow of the universe and that that flow of the big all that is, right, actually defines true need. That we restore things to the right relationship that is good for all living things, that's true need. When things are out of alignment with that, that's a true need for restoration. Okay, so when things are in right relationship and we humans are taking right action, and things are then best for all living things. So the shaman is focused on restoring that right relationship with things. So for example, contemporary example would be for me, my greatest challenge is when families call me in to help a loved one who is dying because the family wants them fixed. The family wants them to live usually. But often when I connect with the soul of the person who is dying, they want to die. 
they're just struggling with it and they're, they're actually done and they're trying to leave. And so right action then for me is to restore right relationship and assist this soul in what it's trying to do, which is to die, regardless of what pleases the family. And that's so were I to assist this person then to die, I could be then accused of sorcery by the family. So you see, it's, it's, it's a sticky wicket. Okay. So, nonetheless, the practice of shamanism is about the constant restoration of humans and their actions and the results of their actions back into the right, in the flow of things as defined by the bigger picture, the oneness, not human desires and greed and lust. Okay. So, in the practice of sorcery, one is not necessarily concerned with restoration to that larger flow and the need that arises out of it. In sorcery, what is served is defined by the choice of the sorcerer or the desires of the client, regardless of the right relationship with things. So I've turned certain, not many, but some people away because I couldn't figure out how to do what it is they wanted done in a way that wouldn't involve sorcery wasn't that they even wanted bad things. It's just what they wanted done wasn't really, as I could best understand it from my help with spirits, restoring things to their right relationship. And so I had to turn them away and refuse to do the work. And I'm not even saying these people wanted bad things to happen necessarily. But there's just this understanding that there is a flow and a connection in that great web of life and the oneness of all things. And, it, and that is what we serve. Not even just the people that come to us as clients, but the oneness. And that people that come, there's sort of an assumption that they're wanting to be restored to that oneness. When they don't want to be restored to that oneness, then there's a problem. I mean, unless we want to practice sorcery. Okay. So historically, scholars have confused sorcery and shamanism often treating them as the same profession because sometimes a person practices both in these indigenous cultures. So it is confusing if you don't actually draw a distinction between sorcery as a distinct practice from shamanism because sometimes in many cultures the same person is doing both. Like um, in uh, North and South America, This is not uncommon, and it is often accepted, if not expected, from otherwise benevolent shamans. Because acts of sorcery can be practiced by these otherwise benevolent shamans as a means of survival, of protection, or of healing someone in in their group, their tribe, their family, whatever, um, particularly against outside enemies. And And so these these acts of sorcery for protection are often perceived of as necessary in these cultures. So by the very nature of this whole situation, this is a very, very fuzzy line. So how do we define things for today? Intentional sorcery is perhaps best defined as something that is innately disruptive to the order of things, is malevolent in intent and manipulative, but not necessarily evil. Sorcerers are those people who perform acts of sorcery consistently for personal gain with disregard for the good of the community as a whole, including that community of non-human beings. There is always a price for sorcery because it does not align with that oneness of all things. So it costs 
energy. When you restore things to the flow, you gain energy because you you get caught up in the right flow of things, in, in the natural flow of things. When we choose to go against that flow, it costs energy. We can do it, but it costs energy. So there's always a hidden cost in sorcery, always. And it is not always apparent what or how high that price is. So, for example, in Africa, it is believed that for every power gained through sorcery or other unnatural means, a natural power of the people is lost. Not the sorcerer, the people. And when uh, sorcerers use their power to do harm, it is said that their relationship with spirit becomes polluted. The shaman must decide if the benefit to the community by the action outweighs the cost and whether or not the resulting contamination can be cleansed and the relationship with spirit salvaged for the future. So consistent, intentional misuse of power cannot be cleansed simply because we can't keep up with the pollution. Right? We're constantly generating it and we can't clean it up faster than we're generating. So the accumulated pollution brings misfortune and possibly a painful death to the sorcerer. However, more often it is the community or the sorcerer's loved ones or those close to them who are not as power-filled and protected as the sorcerer who actually suffer and die. The ramifications of the, act- of the sorcerer's actions. And... I have watched this happening today. So this is not, I'm not just talking about history. So a contemporary shaman, shamanic teacher who has people constantly dying around them should be suspect no matter their outward presentation. Similarly, any practitioner like you, like anyone who suddenly had people close to them dying should look at where they're sourcing their power from and why. They may have slipped unconsciously into acts of sorcery and not known it and be paying the price. It was very important to notice what is going on around us because as this belief in Africa said, when we're drawing power unnaturally, it costs somebody somewhere else. And in this case... In their definition of things, it costs the people. So for a contemporary person, contemporary practitioner, it's harder to discern who are my people. It's easier when you were the shaman in the village. Now, who are my people? Who is paying the cost of those actions? So it's important for practitioners to know this. So anyway, okay, so shamans and sorcerers both work with energies of the visible and invisible worlds. And it is the intent of their actions that make a difference. So the shamans seek to restore the harmony to that oneness of all things. And in particular, the oneness is usually fine. It's just us. So they're usually restoring humans to the oneness or repairing the results of our actions and bringing that back into harmony with the oneness. The sorcerer seeks personal gain, which may simply be, how powerful can I become in this life? doesn't necessarily mean you're harming anybody overtly, but it could just be the personal exploration of how cool is a human? Like, what, what could I possibly learn to do? How many different animals can I learn to shapeshift into? 
You know, it becomes this personal, this path of personal gain. I don't just mean simplistically money. I mean the lusting after and greed for experiences that ultimately have served no greater purpose than your own self-interest. That's also sorcery. And to do so with complete disregard for who is paying the price for those choices. So it's a disregard for the harmony and any disruption created in the larger flow of the universe. So understand then that all shamanic skills are neutral. Back to the amoral energies. That benevolence, the the benevolence or malevolence of any act results from the intent of the practitioner and, and how and why that practitioner sets that act forth. Um, for example, in the upper Amazon, the shamans work with darts. So do the sorcerers. So a shaman coughs up and sends a dart into the person that they're healing to diagnose what is wrong with the person. Act of healing. The sorcerer coughs up and sends out a dart to harm someone. Exact same darts, different intention. An act of harm. It will cause illness where the same act with a completely different intent is part of the process of healing. And so that's what I mean. It's very, very similar and yet completely different. Okay. So in cultures where these two professions have developed together in the, in the native tongue of the people, these things have different names. So the same action performed for two different reasons have two different names. And what's been um, problematic in the research and the writing about these people is often the distinction between those two names is left out in the translation. And so it's really important to, if you are working with these peoples and want to understand this, to really listen to what they are saying and to work to get the translation right. Because where people have lived their entire lives with both shamans and sorcerers, the same actions have entirely different names because they are motivated by different energies. They have different intention and entirely different outcomes. So to simplify and step down a few notches from the truly gnarly stuff that sor- sorcery is just the manipulation of forces, energies, or beings. So some very traditional shamanic practices like hunting magic or love medicine are technically forms of sorcery because they manipulate, not all hunting magic and not all love medicine, but the issue is that they manipulate, some, some of it manipulates the animal or the person to do what they wouldn't naturally do. So it's technically sorcery, low level sorcery nonetheless. And so once again, we get back to that question. Okay, hunting magic, desperately need to feed the people. Is this act of manipulation of this deer worth it? And can I clean up my relationship with deer spirit after I do this? You know, can I balance that out then? You know, and then that's, that's the thing about these decisions is it's not simple. It's not black and white that it's complex and the actual morality and ethics of these decisions rest on our shoulders. Okay. 
So it is important to understand that whenever we act from a motivation to manipulate another, even if that motivation is wholly unconscious, we are practicing sorcery. Unconscious though it may be, it is still sorcery. So when you are acting out of your wounded child, even when you are doing that unconsciously, you are act, we, all of us, we are acting to manipulate the situation. We're not dealing with reality. We're dealing with our projected reality. And so we're trying to manipulate reality to work with our projected reality. And so we are manipulating the situation, even unconsciously. So our actions then are unconscious sorcery. And this is why it is critically important that we not only wake up, but we grow up. Similarly, grandiose egotistical actions that are being taken to manipulate reality, right, are also acts of unconscious sorcery. And so in America, I can speak only for America, but in America, this is normalized behavior. And I actually believe it is waking up out of this stupefying sleep of manipulation and unconscious sorcery with the world being run by wounded children and grandiose egos that people are rebelling against at the moment. And that's what the revolution that's trying to happen is really about. It's about waking up to our greater good, waking up to what it means truly, responsibly to be grown up in the world and to be moral and ethical. Okay, so that's the point of today's show, is to really look at and understand unconscious sorcery that is common and utterly normalized in everyday America. All right, so let's build a bridge then from sorcery to unconscious sorcery. And so I'm going to call on my dearest, dear friend, Stephen Bear, and a really great blog he wrote a while ago called How I Became a Sorcerer. And you can read the full blog at singingtotheplants.com, which is Steve's um, website. It's also his excellent book about um, shamanism in the upper Amazon, Singing to the Plants. And I believe it just came out in Kindle, as well as paperback and hardback. So singingtotheplants.com. So um, what I like about this blog is that Steve clearly articulates the unconscious stuff that is at the root of his moment of unconscious and unintended sorcery. And also that Steve is man enough to, 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 to cop to it, to see what he did and to write it in a blog and stick it out there for everyone to read. And, to, you know, it's a true act of maturity to be able to self-reflect and be honest about what you find there. And that's what's required if we're ever going to get out of this morass of unconscious sorcery. So that's partly why I really like the blog because the blog is writing about exactly what we need to do. So anyway, as I said, Steve writes about shamanism in the upper Amazon. So he's very, very aware of sorcery and shamanism and how they are very intertwined. Um, and in the region that he has trained in for over a decade is um, the people of that region believed that human beings in general have powerful urges to harm other humans. And uh, given this, the difference then between a healer and a sorcerer comes down to a matter of self-control. This is the essence of Steve's blog. And he says that in that issue hangs the story. So Steve 
tells the story uh, condensed in this way. So Steve says, I was sitting in a training seminar here in the U.S., and I was angry with the facilitator, a man I greatly respect and admire. I was angry for foolish and childish reasons. I felt I was not being paid enough attention. Suddenly, without apparent intention on my part, a spider flew out of my mouth. A large, black, hairy spider about three inches across. A spider flew from my mouth to the face of the seminar facilitator where it grasped and clung to his cheek, eventually melting into his face. I was taken aback by this. Damn, I said. I didn't realize I was that pissed off. And that would have been the end of it. Except that at the next day's session, the distraught facilitator announced that he had been told um, that his wife's breast cancer had been in re- that had been in remission had reoccurred. So Steve goes on to talk about this, but in essence, Steve says, I did not cause the harm. I could not have caused the harm. But what happened was a loss of control. My momentary anger, my ego, my envidia, the worst part of me leaping from my mouth in the form of a spider, just like the spiders and scorpions that are projected in the upper Amazon from the phlegm of the sorcerer. What Steve says, what I carry away from this experience is a still a sense of guilt and an understanding of three things. First, there really is no going back. So Steve says, once you walk through the door into the realm of spirits, you cannot return to any prior state of innocence. As I've said before, as Steve has said before, once you begin la dieta, once you drink ayahuasca, once you begin to form relations of confianza with the healing plants, the world becomes a more dangerous place. So let me interject here a little moment with Michael Harner. So Michael shares an even simpler version of this idea that there is really no going back at the end of the basic Um, shamanic journey class. I can't remember what Michael calls it, but that basic class where you just learn to journey. At the end, he says something like, now you're connected to your helping spirits and you must watch your anger and jealousy, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think people really understand this at that moment. You know, people are really giddy and caught up in the fact of, oh my God, I've got helping spirit. I journeyed. You know, I helped somebody. I mean, it's, they're pretty high at the end of that workshop. It's exciting. And I think they miss the point that Michael is making. That what Michael means is that now you must watch your emotional reactions to things because we've done no training to grow you up emotionally. And now everything you do, including your immature emotional responses to things, will be charged by your relationship with spirit. I mean, think about it, people. If my connection with my helping spirits gives me the power to heal, gives me the power to find lost soul parts, to change people's lives, then imagine what those energies are doing in all the other parts of my life. So any place where I fly off the handle, I'm flying off the handle, not with just Christina's spirit, but with my helping spirits are flying off with me. And this is the piece we don't understand. And this is what Steve is talking about. There is no going back. Once you make a connection with spirit, everything you do is infused and charged with that extra relationship with spirit. And so you are now even more need to be, even more accountable 
for what it is that you are offering to the world. And Michael Harner says it right out the gates in the very first workshop. Not that anybody actually knows what he's saying, but at least he says it. So let me share a recent example in my own life. So recently, um, I just started my year one training again. New group came through. And um, there, there was a woman in that class who has followed the arduous journey many people follow to really awaken to their shamanic gifts. It's hard to do that here in America because everybody thinks you're crazy. And she had a hard childhood like everybody else. She, she suffered. She turned that suffering into the gifts that allowed her to open up to her shamanic gifts and bring those, those gifts out. And from my perspective as a teacher, they're in a kind of a raw form, but they're beautiful. Very, very beautiful. At the same time, she and she did that not as one of my students. So somehow at the same time with whoever her teachers were, they encouraged her to bring out the shamanic gifts, to teach her shamanic skills and to connect with those gifts, but utterly and completely neglected even giving her the idea that she needed to grow up emotionally. And so while she has this history that is in part, what has awakened her shamanic gifts to simply survive it, it's also a history that created an enormous amount of wounded child energy. So her child archetype is deeply in the shadow. And she responds out of that place or reacts out of that place regularly. And she's been a client of mine for a long time. So I know this it is, is a pattern. I know this is is a pattern that continues. And because her shamanic teachers never gave her the idea that she needed to look at that, she doesn't see at all the importance of that. And so class happens, class is over, um, wounded child gets triggered, and she turns on me and tells, projects a whole lot of things on me, which as a teacher happens all the time, right? That's part of the challenges of being a teacher is you have to stand in the face of your students and your clients projections continuously and it's one of the greatest teachers of being a teacher and being a practitioner so I'm standing in the face of this but what's interesting to me I'm thinking wow this is actually pretty painful not because it was necessarily true or untrue but because her shamanic gifts are really powerful and beautiful I mean they're exquisite when they're coming through as gifts But that exact same exquisite beauty of the gift is how equally damaging and toxic it is when it's coming through that wounded child. And so I was standing there and I'm thinking, wow, this is like getting whipped. It was was really like it was drawing blood. It was pretty incredible. And I thought it is such a shame that her shamanic teachers took no responsibility or accountability to even give her the question even any idea inside of herself that what she was doing was unethical as a practitioner. And so the point is that someone would lash out out of their wounded child. It's pretty normal American behavior. But when you piggyback that with the helping spirit energies, it's really, really damaging. And so now you add that 
the, the thing about our wounded child energies or our grandio- grandiosity patterns that come out of our wounded child energies is that these are pattern behaviors in us, right? These are unresolved personal patterns. And so we do these things again and again and again. So while each act of individual unconscious sorcery in and of itself may be forgivable or clean upable, they're patterned actions. So we do these patterns daily. We do these patterns perhaps many times a day. Who's cleaning up if you're not even noticing it's a problem? And so if we go back to those African people that understood if you were going to perform an act of sorcery, you had to assess the damage and could you clean up that pollution and restore that relationship with spirit. And so we have practitioners like this woman all over America acting out of their wounded child when they're not in the act of actually practicing shamanism, right? And practicing unconscious sorcery in a patterned way. And so as with all ceremony, the power of ceremony is the repetition of patterns in, in a good way. Well, it also works in a negative way, or I should say it also works exactly the same way for things that are harmful. So these are deeply patterned behaviors until we look at them. We're doing it unconsciously and we're not noticing. We're doing it again and again and again. And so that unconscious sorcery, which each moment may be forgivable, is cumulatively and becoming powerful. Who is cleaning up after you? Who is paying the price for that sorcery? This is what we need to wake up to in this next phase of shamanism in the contemporary world, especially the Western world. We need to not only wake up into our spiritual and shamanic gifts, but we absolutely must grow up because hand in hand for the last 20 years, people have been quote unquote practicing shamanism without any idea they were actually also practicing sorcery because they're not asked to look at themselves. So we really can't afford to allow the wounded child or our grandiose egos to run the show when we are also practicing shamanism. Though it's quite normal to let the wounded child and grandiose egos to run the show in America, we can't afford it once we bring our shamanic skills online. So back to Steve Baer and his three things and what he was saying about what he learned from his moment of unconscious and unintentional sorcery. So the first thing that he learned was there is no going back. He said, when you begin to realize the porosity of reality, when the world has become magical, filled with wonders, filled with the spirits, filled with meaning, then you have begun to see that what was there all along but what was invisible to you. And then you must accept that your childish anger is right here and now, as it always was, an ugly spider leaping from your lips, capable of causing great harm. Second, second thing that Steve learned. The second thing is that our egos are tricky and autonomous. And so Steve says, explains it this way, people in the upper Amazon consider the darts and other pathogenic objects in the sorcerer's phlegm to be autonomous, alive spirits, sometimes with their own needs and desires, including the desire to kill. 
I now believe that that is profoundly true. This is what Steve is saying. Our egos are as tricky and autonomous as these magical darts. Our envidia, our foolish willingness to destroy relationships of confianza with others seems to flare up at the slightest provocation. The sorcerer, in fact, epitomizes solitary, retentiveness, and lack of reciprocity. Lonely, demanding, querulous, abusive, miserly, and vengeful, just like the ego. And it's just like a life run by the wounded child. Demanding, lonely, arguing, always angry, vengeful, needy, same thing. Charged with the energy of the helping spirits. And remember, the helping spirits do not judge. If you want help blazing your wounded child into the world, they're happy to ride on that horse with you. If you want to go down in flames, they'll go down in flames with you. They don't care. They're A, spirit, and B, amoral. They're not passing judgment. I have heard so many contemporary practitioners say, well, my helping spirits were with me, so of course it was good. Well, Hello, people, wake up. A moral world. You're in the moral world. It is our job to define the morality and the ethics of what we're doing. So, number three, and this is perhaps the most important thing in Steve's excellent blog. The third thing that he learned is that this whole thing about the childish anger and the ego being like a sorcerer is... But that is why self-control is mandatory. So this is the third thing Steve learned. Self-control is mandatory. So where does self-control come from? So knowing Steve, his humor, his spirit of adventure, I know that he's not talking about being controlling, being unemotional and shutting down. That's not Steve. So he's speaking about... Now, I'm speaking for him, but I believe that he's speaking about the self-control that is the result of systematic cultivation of humility and maturity. So self-control does not come from – now, this is me. I take full accountability for the rest of this. This is not Steve. Okay. Self-control definitely does not come from being good or being filled with light or being identified as a light worker. Because these positions that we take, these roles we think we step into, are by their very nature defined by not looking fully at ourselves. These positions rely on never looking honestly at oneself. Self-control comes from a daily practice of honest self-reflection, compassionate discernment about whether or not you want to do that again. And additional skills to truly clear the energies found to be at the root of the behavior and to clear those energies from the body. What is absolutely critical to understand is if you want to cultivate self-control, insight is not enough. Insight is part of the process. Understanding insight, inspiration around what is going on is part of the process. But it is not enough. It is not nearly enough. Okay. So this is the uniqueness of the cycle teachings here at Last Mass Center. But that is not the point of the show, so I'm not going to harp on it. But that is, people say, why should I study with you? You're not even going to train me to be a shaman. Not until I trained you to be a human. 
And I don't mean that arrogantly, but that is the uniqueness of Last Mass Center is we learn shamanic skills hand in hand with growing up personal work skills. So you don't get level two until you can do the self-reflection required at level one. You don't get level three until you can do the shadow work required at level two. And you don't get level four until you can do the clearing work necessary to dump every single story you carry from your entire life history except one story that you are unique you are divine and you are one with all things that is the only story that is true and it is the only story that matters all the other stories in year three need to be cleared from the mind from the heart and from the body once all that's taken care of it's really not hard to learn the shamanic healing skills and go out and be a great shamanic practitioner learning shamanic healing skills is actually really easy what is really hard is to grow up to become humble and powerful and to gain that self-control that steve is talking about and to gain the spiritual maturity that i'm always harping about that that is the essence of what we must do if we're going to continue to work with spirit so the other piece in this that is important I'm a little bit running out of time now. The other piece of this that is important is that to maintain all of this, we must have a healthy expression of our emotions. And the only way we get that back is to reclaim the child from the wounded child. That the child archetypal energy within us must be drawn out of the shadow through the relentless efforts of our own healing. And we must get the full template of our emotions back so that we do not hesitate to go into despair any more than we would hesitate to go into joy and that we are able to go into both should the moment call for it and all the other emotions in between. And that this is absolutely critically important because you actually need a full emotional template to accurately practice shamanism. So for practitioners that remain shut down emotionally, it's very problematic because even in the upper Amazon, right, an emotional, a full unbiased emotional template is required to accurately interpret what you're seeing from the darts. So I'm seeing a big black snake inside the person. Is that big black snake illness? Is that big black snake power animal? I'm not going to know that without an emotional response and a physical response in non-ordinary reality to that energy. So, if I, so for example, I worked with a woman recently, beautiful woman, great skills, was doing a healing and because of her own unresolved issues, could not see clearly what she was seeing in her client. Misjudged it, did okay for the client, but ended up taking the energy on because of where she now she was actually mature enough to recognize that that is what had happened but because it was her own blind spot she needed help getting out of it so i give her credit for really getting what happened but it, once again i probably said that too fast but it was her own unresolved issues so her own wounded child that blinded her or biased her i should say she saw what was going on but she was biased to it and reacted to it so that was 
wrong action for her ended up ultimately being right action for the person she was working on. But then she ended up carrying that energy with her unnecessarily. And so, again, our ability to move wholeheartedly as practitioners is part of this process of gaining the kind of self-control that Steve is talking about that allows us to truly make this discernment between choosing in this life to practice shamanism and to not also be then practicing this unconscious sorcery. So I, I have four minutes and a choice to make here, um, which is I, I am um, hesitant to talk about sorcery without spending a moment to talk about protection. But I also have this really nice email here from a listener, and I'm just not exactly sure which way to go. But anyway, I'm going to go with protection in general just to be responsible. So as we've talked about in many other shows, actually, that the, the protection from sorcery is to be impeccable in, a, in, in your own life, in your actions, your thoughts, words, and deeds, to be impeccable, right? To have no fear, to laugh in the face of the things that terrify you, and to stay in the oneness, the energy of the oneness, and to stay infused with the energy of your spirit help. Because that energy will help to sort of fill in the gaps where you're not yet completely whole yourself. What's interesting about what is necessary to truly feel protected from sorcery, it's also the same list of what protects us from these energies entering into our dreams. If you listen to the show about dreams, the shamanic interpretation of dreams. But what's interesting about these things is they are the exact same things that would protect you from practicing unconscious sorcery. So isn't that interesting? You know, that the very things anyone would have learned in an indigenous culture to protect them from sorcery are the very practices that would keep them from practicing unconscious sorcery. So what this really means is that you need a sound energy body. And what that requires is the discipline of cultivation. And what you need is the integrity in your energy body. And what that requires is clearing the past. And so we're back once again to the relentless, compassionate, but continuous work to draw the child out of the shadow of the wounded child and to do your healing, to get yourself out of the past so that you can stand in the moment to see what is truly going on and respond to it wholeheartedly and to bring healing and your gifts to the world. So thank you everyone for listening to me here today. I want to thank the spirits for gathering around. I thank the ancestors. I thank oh, the spirits of the internet for not crashing on us here today. We give thanks to the earth. We give thanks to the sky. And we give thanks to the heart that unites us all. So next week, I don't know. I don't really mean to be on. Maybe it's Halloween. I'm on the, I'm on the dark side. So next week, we're going to explore death and being with the dying. So we're going to look at, a, from a shamanic perspective, how we die and what's incredibly important about that. And in a sense, how we live then defines how we die. And then we're going to look at what happens after we die. 
And so join us next week as we explore both of these journeys, how to be with the dying, how to approach your own death, and then what happens on the other side. So for those of you that want to know about classes coming up at Last Mass Center, you can look at the calendar on the website, lastmaskcenter.org. Archives of all the shows are at whyshamanismnow.com, as is the support button, should you choose to click on it and support the show. And um, I guess that's all I had to say. So thank you very much for listening here this week, and have a great week. <laughs>